All right, what are we doing on Thursday, Colin? We got Nape. Nape's in town. So we're going to be at Nape. We got a booth. It's funny. I posted this Twitter thread of all these badass ideas of what I would do if I ran Nape, which include included a catapult outside dressing up dummies, crash dummies as oil, uh, just stop oil protesters and launching them over the convention center. 15 bucks a launch, good little revenue stream there. Get one of the water gun carnival games, but instead of clowns, instead of shooting the clown faces, you're shooting faces of Greta Thunberg. And after that, we made a partnership. (laughs) (laughs) That that reminded me of Big Head's potato launcher in in, uh, Silicon Valley. It was with Hooli. Nice. What was it? It was... If you've never seen Silicon Valley, you wouldn't. We need Jake here. Jake's the one that's seen Silicon Valley. I haven't. He always told me about it. He's like, it's just like our lives. I'm like, why the fuck would I want to watch that? (laughs) But anyway, so we'll we'll be at Nape on Thursday. Me and Chuck and John and Jake will be floating in and out of there. Um, Come join us. Yeah, we got a boost and come hang out with us. And um, I think we also have discount codes. uh, If you're on the DW email list, uh, should seen an email come out so anyways big week we'll be there um lots of stuff happening in energy too who's got the run of show who's kicking it off today i'll, ju- I'll just kick off because i don't know where the run of show is man it's a shit show in the middle east i i'm, I'm gonna admit, i'm gonna have some numbers wrong but u.s bases i think have been attacked 165 different times over the last what three or four months we had uh three navy uh seals right or were they military yeah die uh when a drone sent a ship attacked ship us attack, in jordan yeah. we launched airstrikes against syria there's talk of iran shooting bombs into uh our largest military base in syria this is like this is like nostradamus world war three type prediction stuff happening and and i think the media is reporting on it, but they don't seem to be taking it as seriously as this could be. It is kind of interesting. Like, you know, all my memories of kid being a kid, like in the early nineties at the Gulf War, it's like, that's all the news was, was just war coverage. And seems like, right. And and also crude went up a lot. Yeah. It just seems like this doesn't get as much attention as, as, Maybe it did back then. I don't know if there's a reason for that or not, but it just doesn't seem like anyone takes conflict seriously because all of those things are very serious things. And but yeah, a lot of this, and I, I was reading it up, up on it this morning. We the there was a retaliatory strike on a base in um, in Syria. I think that you mentioned uh, for the strikes over the weekend. It happened Sunday night, and these are mostly, from what I understand, Iranian-backed uh, militia that are that are executing these attacks and the raid last night killed a bunch of um i forget the the affiliation but no americans were killed in the in the strike on the syrian base and it was there's a u.s presence there because they're doing they're doing military training in syria so it's um kind of from the media attention standpoint, like it's a bunch of little skirmishes. Although in our raids over the weekend, we did fly a, a B-1 from the U.S. to participate in, in the bombing that, that uh, the, the strikes that the U.S. Um, 
took in Iraq and in Syria. And maybe the differentiator back, you know, the Gulf War and then, you know, the uh, taking out Saddam, Saddam Hussein is, I mean, there was a buildup to a big thing, right? I mean, we're in the UN getting permission to invade another country, basically. So there was that buildup and all, and these are little skirmishes popping up. But, and I, and, and, my worry about this is on the humanity level of what could could happen and deaths and lives. So I don't want to trivialize it by having to talk about energy, but ultimately that's what we are as an energy show. I mean, a drone flying right into the middle of the war field. Now, I know the Saudis have security that probably prevents that, but you'd also think the U.S. military base in Jordan would have security that prevents that. So, I mean. Well, it's crazy. And Jordan was where the three U.S. servicemen were killed. What's crazy is that drones are changing warfare because, you know, we've always had, you know, these these massive drones that the United States has, but all of a sudden in the last couple of years, how just these these small drones are being used as well. It's kind of changing the dynamics of war because now for a couple thousand bucks, you can have a pretty significant attack on someone so um you know you see these videos like in ukraine in the russian ukraine war how they're using drones it's pretty interesting how it's becoming cheaper to inflict damage as well so even yeah. like if you have defense like yeah and we have the iron dome and all this shit but could the iron dome pick up a small drone from, yeah. you know be, with explosives probably not um, yeah, i mean it really was 9-11 where where uh, Ben Laden basically showed that for a two hundred and fifty dollar airline ticket, yeah, for sure, you know, you yeah. could go inflict inflict casualties, and I think kind of that mindset change as well as technology, yeah. But this is something we have to wa- uh, watch for because I'm sure, and maybe we just kind of roll right into this. You know, the worst thing a management team could ever say to me when I was sitting at Kane was. This time it's different. Yeah. I would always go, oh, God, it's never different, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, reports are coming out that U.S. production seems to have rolled over. We're down, pick a number, 200, 300,000 barrels a day over the last couple of months. Inventories are drawing to really, really low levels. The Saudis are out there talking about, eh, 13 million a day. Now we really meant 12. And you know, claiming to do it politically as opposed to maybe they just don't have the rock to be able to do it. Chuck's thesis. Chuck's thesis, exactly. I've only had it since 2017. So, <laughs> But my, my point is low inventories, U.S. rolling over, $70 oil, no real incentive to do more of this, and warfare going on in the world. It oil's, just seems like we're on going the down. verge of, of yeah, and, and oil <laughs> keeps dropping. So it doesn't really I don't know. Mark makes sense, make sense of that for me because I yeah. Can't. Good luck with that. I look. Josh Young was on CNBC, um, one of the affiliates this morning, talking about you know where 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 is the market? It's tighter than consensus seems to believe, mainly on the result of what Exxon and Chevron reported in terms of stronger results, but also talking about at least in their U.S. portfolios, production expected to be down from higher than expected levels in the fourth quarter. And at least in Chevron's case, um, one analyst had talked about the notion that Chevron had said, we basically 
need to build a bit more duck inventory in the first half. So production is going to be down, but their production exit for 2024 is expected to be, I think, about 40,000 barrels a day higher than they were in 4Q of 23. So um, all these crosswinds and trying to figure out what's going on in crude markets when the physicals start to indicate things are getting tighter, but yet, you know, we've lost ground in both Brent and TI. Yeah. Who knows? And and adding to the never put it in writing that it's different this time, that was Dan Pickering's mandate when he ran research and said, if you do put that in writing, you're fired <laughs> because it's never different. Anyway. Yeah, it's funny thinking about, you know, Desert Storm and Wars in the Gulf. Um, my I had this trunk full of like childhood items that my mom brought to me. She finally cleaned up the attic and anyways, opened it up the other day and forgot but i had these in their uh military trading cards like it was tops trading cards and it's like of all the generals and the planes and huge fucking propaganda <laughs> uh, uh initiative there but going back to like how like that was like a big thing then when like everyone was like invested in the war and the middle east even to the point where you had kids collecting trading cards on the generals and shit and so um, i knew i knew yeah because there was some actual doubt when we went against Saddam Hussein in the first Gulf War, I mean, there there was some talk of, yeah, the United States is number one, but Saudi, I think, was the third largest military or the fourth largest military. There was some talk there was going to be a challenge here and all this. Uh, Kim and I had gone to Vegas just, you know, we were young, either late in college or just had graduated, and we were there. And we were at a table with a bunch of Navy pilots and they were just like, yeah, this is kind of our last weekend away. We're going to go over to Iraq. We're going to take down the take down uh, um, Saddam Hussein and all this. And I was like, oh, man, good luck. Dude gets a 19. He says, hit it. And the dealer looks at him and goes, you sure you want to hit that? And he said, yes, he got a two. And so I knew Saddam Hussein was fucked at that point. I'm like, dude, I'm not going against these guys. So this was Desert Storm. This is Desert Storm. This was number yeah. one. I, I have, call. I, I, those. Where were you when these things happened? I was at Midland's finest seafood restaurant, otherwise known as Red Lobster. I was gonna say Long John Silver's. <laughs> and there was a TV on. And if you remember, you, you'll remember. Uh, I think the most famous on-scene reporting was from. Uh, CNN, they were about the only international cable affiliate or network. And um, Bernie Shaw and John Holloman were holed up in the, I forget the name of the hotel in Baghdad, but I, th I think that was the uh, genesis of the shock and awe commentary because they had that grainy footage, but yeah. you know, the skies lit up. Yeah, skies lit up. That's the, what the, I always this remember. Is real. Is like, I always remember like dark skies and just like missiles and guns shooting off. So. Um, but it's interesting, like just going back to this, it's like, is it because it's not one concentrated effort? It's a whole bunch of different skirmishes, who knows, but hopefully, you know, things sort out sooner and than later. There, there's some cynics out there commenting that, look, we're, we're trying to keep the headlines tamped down and, and really the risk associated with all of this really mushrooming into something much larger and that we need to keep energy prices, crude prices low at least until after November 5th. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, you know, awesome. I, I do think there's, there's a bit of, of different fundamentals, at least in the way investors look 
and traders look at, at the at the landscape. It's just more support in my thesis that fundamentals don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> like seriously, I mean, it's so much speculation. Like you know, maybe over a long enough time horizon, fundamentals well, matter. But how many times have we been on the show, or you see people talking on Twitter and they're counting molecules and looking at supply and demand, but up oil opens up <laughs> going down. Like it doesn't it seems to never make make sense to have any rhyme or reason and, and, to. And it. our response, the fundamental fundamental um, adherence response to that you're never wrong. You're just early. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Long long live Matt Simmons. But but the reversal in plans to increase that capacity, uh, the maximum sustainable capacity from. 12 to 13 was met with a smackdown of some of the biggest OFS names. I think Schlumberger was down 7% in the first day of trading after that came out. And so, you know, after speaking in their earnings calls, there was a lot of constructive commentary about international. Of course, that's looking out mm-hmm. quarters and maybe a year, but longer term. Uh, the other undercurrent here or the other sidebar is, as we've seen, the Saudis – are increasingly talking about accelerating gas development. We talked about that last week. So, um, you know, is this this is kind of a shift in portfolio allocation? Mm-hmm. Um, and and if that's the case, maybe we display some some crude that we're otherwise using domestically, which is all part of that thesis yeah. around them going harder after natural gas and being an LNG player as well. Yeah. So. Well, let's let's do this as kind of the the get out question on this. Give me kind of a prediction of some sort and let's just frame it before the end of the year. What kind of happens? Maybe what kind of happens with crude prices? Maybe is there a way to play it? And uh, Colin, I'll go to you first because Mark kind of glared at me and said, give me 30 seconds. (laughs) So look into your crystal ball. Yeah, I thought the point Mark brought up was really interesting about, you know, suppressing headlines and trying to keep prices low until November. Like that actually seems valid. I hadn't thought about that. And so anyways, I wouldn't expect any significant upward price action. I could see it, you know, ending the year at $90 a barrel. Um, I don't know if it'll go much lower either. So you know, if we're talking about fundamentals, I think fundamentals set up for where you should have higher prices, but there's probably some things happening behind the scenes too to to keep prices artificially suppressed. So, yeah, I'll add to that when you when you follow the guys that follow crude on Twitter, like Rory Johnson and and some of the others, they can't figure out why prices are kind of bouncing around like they are. Like they'll have a big run up and then they'll just drop. Yeah. And then they'll drop one day and bounce up and people are like, this doesn't make any sense. So you wonder if something's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. I'm happy to say I wear a tinfoil hat. No, that's what I'm saying. It's like you have artificial factors too that 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 could be. I mean, is somebody manipulating the SPR, for instance, and and stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I just think we'll find a narrative somewhere in the political discourse that keeps prices from rocketing to the upside. If rocketing is, you know, another 10 bucks from here, I'd, I'd put, I'd put a much higher probability on, you know, kind of finishing the year with the seven handle on TI. Maybe Brent is 
north of 80 if we continue to see inventories uh, indicate a tighter market. Yeah. I, I just, you know, we got surprised last year in 23 with everybody got surprised whose business it is to estimate what the U.S. is going to do, for example, and, you know, beat it by several hundred thousand barrels a day. I mean, we almost grew production in the U.S. by a million barrels a day when it, earlier expectations were as low as three to 400,000 barrels a day. Yeah. And as Aubrey famously said at IPAA back in, I believe it was 2012, as we're moving into, you know, the, the salad days of, of oil from, from shale and the growth um, coming on the heels of what happened in the preceding seven, eight, 10 years in natural gas, he said, we're just too good at this stuff. Yeah. We're, we're causing this problem. And he said, it's going to happen in oil as well. And so I don't know what's going on, but uh, below the waterline, you know, there's still that conflict of we're running out of inventory tier one, you know, technology can take us only so far, but you Colin have talked quite a bit about, look, the prize is another few percentage points in recovery factors on oil in place. Most of which is going to be left in place. Yeah. With, with current technology. So the push is continuing yeah. below the radar in, in a lot of little individual actions that all add up to, I think, stronger production performance, at least 2023 is an indication of that. Yeah. And so why would, why would we expect that to, to come to a screeching halt? Yeah. Is there more of a bow wave effect into 2024? Yeah. Vicky did say at Davos, as we also talked about, that get ready for tight markets in 2025 for several years. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about a super cycle for years now, and it never really came. But all right, y'all are both wrong, <laughs> and let me tell you why. But it it, it starts with me and a mea culpa, because when we did this on BDE about call it I don't know eighteen months ago, yeah, we were talking about oil prices, and I said before the end of the year, December twenty three, it would spike upwards of close to a hundred. But then it would moderate off and roll into the elections, November of 24, at $70 a barrel. I had it in reverse. <laughs> we were able to, because of the un unanticipated growth in, in oil prices, the SPR, the beating of the narrative in the media, et cetera, we were able to keep it at 70 I'm going to go out and apologize to Barry Mullinex because he was the worst offender as a CEO of saying this time is different. Barry, I'm sorry, but I'm going to say it. This time is different. We're going to have a shock before the election, and okay. and we're going to we're going to see at least ninety. All right. Okay. Chuck's Chuck's taking the other side of it. I am I am on the record. All right. <laughs> Were, weren't you calling at some point when we did a round of forecast or predictions back in kind of. COVID era levels. I'm not talking about negative pricing, but there was going to be some dislocation to the downside. I probably did. I also am on record. You know how we could figure that out? Collide <laughs> <laughs> Pro. Collide Pro. Go look it up. Well, uh, <laughs> oh, you know, the podcast, when I spoke at NAEP uh, three years ago, I actually called for $125.73 oil or something ridiculous. And we got awfully close on that. I got I got some Twitter people pinging me going, dude, you called it. So the greatest thing ever is my Justin Bieber call. If I ever showed <laughs> you this. So Justin Bieber 
releases this music video and he's out in the oil field working and i mean this is like in the belly of downturn and uh during covid and he's got this video and he's like working on a pipeline there's oil shooting everywhere and so i did this uh react video reaction video to it and i tweeted it out you can go look up the tweet and <laughs> the tweet said justin bieber doing this video marks the bottom of the oil cycle it said 200 dollars oil is coming in and dude it almost winds up exactly like that was the bottom then a few weeks later oil just starts taking off and so it's called the justin bieber <laughs> indicator <Yeah. laughs> My my favorite indicator because it involves myself, and so that's why, of course, I'm going to talk <laughs> yeah. about it. Energy Cynic always likes to tweet out that peak oil was the YDC where I got roasted and got a tattoo on my butt. Yeah, Jewel was one of my roasters, and she came in and just obliterated me. Uh, Priest Patrick was one of my roasters. He came in and uh, obliterated me as uh, well, and Energy Cynic has said, that was the glory days, guys. It's been all shit ever since. Yeah, it's all, all downhill since then. One more, one more longer-dated story. Um, everybody remembers the famous drowning in oil cover from The Economist in 1999. Matt Simmons called The Economist the Friday before, I believe, they went out the next week and told them this would be a disaster if you, if you publish this thesis that you know we're going to see Ten dollar crude for a long time, and that that was actually the bottom, right around that time. And then he wrote Twilight in the Desert, which history is judged a bit differently. But I don't know what Twilight in the Desert is. In all seriousness, you ought to you ought to go read that because that was what year did he publish that? Early two thousand five. Two thousand five. So he basically said that Saudi has peaked. Oh, Um, and he did it very well researched. He and he did not bash Saudi. Yeah. It was not a, these guys are stupid. It was like, technically, they're as good as anyone on the planet. Yeah. They just, the rock's giving up. Yeah. Water cuts are getting higher. Pressure's dropping. All this sort of stuff. And yeah. uh, he wasn't that wrong. Matt, Matt spent a bunch of uh, his summer uh, before the book was published when most people in, in Maine are enjoying the outdoors and the water and in a main summer, he's sitting at his dining room table reading uh, Journal of Petroleum Technology. Yeah. He had stacks and stacks of those. And I, I guarantee that for someone who certainly didn't have a petroleum engineering degree, he's read multiples more of those JPT yeah. monographs <laughs> than a number of us, sure. myself included. <laughs> so what it, else? Was, it was an interesting time. Well, so we have happened during this week. I've been kind of out of the loop. I've been arguing with people on Twitter about hard hats and shit which you know kirk had he's wearing his hard hat backwards on bde last week i don't know if anyone ever actually brought it up people are probably just watching it and like i'll why be is the this finance bro and admit i couldn't tell he's like why is this, he's like why is this dude wearing his hat backwards let me give a quick demonstration real quick Please because i got it. a lady in my mentions and she's saying that you can wear your hard hat forwards or backwards and she's like oh well, even osha says that you can wear it forwards or backwards there's a difference between the hard hat and the suspension here. Suspension can only be worn one way. It's always got the the ratchet in the back. So that's how you know if it's backwards or forwards. Now, like they make some hats that look like kind of like baseball hats and like you can wear it backwards, but your suspension is still going to be in the back. So when Joe Biden's wearing it like this, 
like the hard hat is backwards. It's an OSHA so, violation. It's an OSHA violation. So don't fucking argue with me about how to wear a hard hat. You used to wear 100 hours a week. And one of the most complex things, most frustrating things ever to do is replace the suspension in a hard hat. Dude, it's, it never goes well. It's so infuriating. It <laughs> like is. trying to get those little tabs, rivets, yeah. those tabs to pop in and out. Yep. So, anyways, there's. Oh, your- I want to make. I want to make a quick hard hat uh, comment. Oilfield Rando tweeted out this week that his hard hat is just about done. He's got to get a new one. Yeah. If he will put digital Wildcatters stickers on it and like an "I love nimble fatty" uh, <laughs> sticker on it or something like that. I'll pay for his hard hat. I want to know. Send him like a badass carbon fiber digital wildcatters hard hat. I love yeah. Wolf Rando. I'll do that for him in our beat. We'll we'll do that in a, <laughs> we'll, it's one of my we'll favorite dudes on the planet. Yeah. Uh, so we're gonna clip this. We're gonna send it out on Twitter. Uh, on Twitter. On Twitter. See, Twitter. <laughs> Twitter X. Uh, and see if he sees it and if he'll take us up on it. We'll right. totally do that. Sounds good. All right, uh, kind of one last thing. Uh, there are probably a hundred other things we could talk about this week, but uh, we need to go get ready for NAEP and we'll bring it big time. All the investigation we do at NAEP this week, we'll, we'll bring to the show or next report. week. But um, the girlfriend who had suggested, hey, y'all quit calling Europe a uniblock, investigate Europe and all its different countries because they're all different about energy, had said kind of over December, you know, 2024 is the year of the election. It's estimated that 2 billion people are going to vote. Seven out of the 10 largest uh, democracies are voting this year. A lot of geopolitical powers, Great Britain, et cetera, are voting this year. And so one of the things she said to us is, hey, why don't y'all look at each of these elections give a little update on them, what's going on there, but more importantly, kind of how that impacts energy because this could be a big deal this year. Is she going to help us with that? Because I don't know shit about it. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Where do you think he's getting she, his notes? She's, <laughs> she's had some time on her hands. and so like She's I'm bringing Laura on the show for that. Yeah. No, it, I, I told her to come down and do it, and she, she actually is taking notes, and she may wind up creating this content. Yeah. So we'll do the abstract or the summary version. Yeah. The first one we're going to talk about real quick is Congo. And technically, Congo had their elections in December of 2023. Yeah. So it's happened. But just to summarize a little bit, we all re- we all know why Congo is so important. We've talked about that a million times on the show. 70% of the world's cobalt production is from there. You're using that in batteries and alloys, et cetera. One thing, when I started looking at this, I didn't realize Congo has always been a supplier of resources to the world. I mean, back in the 1880s, timber and rubber came out of Congo because of the Belgian king, King Leopold II, uh, in effect, kind of colonized Congo. Mm-hmm. And uh, the British girlfriend likes to say, yeah, we were bad colonizers, but you sure as hell didn't want to be a Belgian colon." Yeah. <laughs> and then the uranium, actually, that we did the Manhattan Project with, came out of the Congo. Okay. There's a there's a mine there that was unique. It was the cheapest uranium on the planet and very strategic for a while. Um what so, was the former name of the country? I do not know this. Throw a little trivia in there. Do you know? Throw us an answer. Zaire. Zaire. Dang. There we go. Mark's full of knowledge. So real quick <laughs> on uh, on Congo, the second Congo war actually 
uh, five million people died. It was the largest wartime uh, losses since World War II, and kind of what arose out of of the Congo, which for a long time had been a dictatorship, et cetera, is in 2006, they put in place a new constitution and multi-parties got together, so they became a democracy. They had an election. Joseph Kabila won. The, he, he had been serving as the temporary leader leading into this. He was also the former leader's son. So Nice. We have a democracy, but then we kind of have a democracy. <laughs> so anyway, the Constitution says two consecutive five-year terms. He served those two terms. Should have been an election in 2016. He stayed an extra two years. Political pressure from the outside caused him to throw an election in which I will not pronounce this correctly. Felix Chisakiti. Uh, actually, Don't won. look at me. Philip Cheese? Is that what you said? <laughs> now I can't say it again. I got it right, I think, the first time that we checked. He was the leader of the Union for Democracy and Social Progress, which was the opposition power. But there are all sorts of allegations of fraud, corruption. There's talk of an unholy deal with uh, the former leader that they kind of packaged this together. Remember when Putin's lieutenant took over, but Putin was still running the show. There's yeah. a lot of talk about that. So fast forward to 2023, the elections that happened. Um, Chisikidi won re-election, but again, all sorts of charges of fraud and corruption. Uh, the Financial Times actually did an analysis because the Catholic Church had put 40,000 observers at polling places. Based on the Catholic Church's uh, math, 59% of the vote went to the opposition candidate, Martin Fayulu, and Felix only got just under 39% of the vote. So we kind of lay all that out to say we, in effect, kind of have a very corrupt democracy in Congo. And where I think that matters when we start talking about the energy businesses, what happens when you have resource development in a corrupt country? Mm -hmm. I think we're seeing history replay, uh, replay itself here. And the last thing I'll, I'll throw out there, just because it's really interesting, because we know all about cobalt. They actually have plans to build the Grand Inga Dam, which would be able to generate 40,000 megawatts of power. So that would be 2X the largest uh, hydroelectric facility on the planet, bigger yeah. than the, uh, the, the Three Gorge Dam in China. Yeah. And that could literally power all of Congo and they could export to South Africa, et cetera. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting from an energy point of view because all the cobalt and potentially a game changer resource for electricity in that part of, of the world. A lot of so. leverage, yeah. Well, to, to address the past in terms of what happens when you're trying to be a player, an international player in resources in a corrupt country, the U.S., the last U.S. mining concern in cobalt left, I believe, in 2006. And that was uh, Free, Freeport McMoran, I believe. And so it's really hard to get, you know, navigate all of that around our special restrictions, the the most well-known of which is the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Yeah. 
and China, uh, Chinese interests control, I think there's 19 mining concerns or concessions in the Cobalt Golden Lane, and 15 or 16 of those 19 are, uh, are, are Chinese. And so, yeah. And further downstream, I think, I think the number's north of 80% of source of refined cobalt comes out of China. Yeah. Yeah. China colonizing Africa and then with their own supply and country, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. We got to wrap this up. We only have a minute and a half. Got a hard deadline. Chuck needs to go to the doctor and get his prostate checked out. Um, <laughs> You're going to send me a, sorry, you got a finger in your butt yeah, card added, this week. Added. There you go. I don't get very many chances to throw the prostate j- joke back out at you. But real quick, want to give a shout out to one of my homies, uh, Lucas Lowe. It's U.S. Coast Guard, uh, rescued a puppy that was stuck in a shipping container and it's gone viral. It's all over CNN and doing millions of views on the internet. So like his picture of him in uniform rescuing this puppy. That's he's awesome. Getting, he's getting all the ladies right now with uh, with that. So yes, shout should. out to Lucas. Man uh, in a uniform, hero and yeah, a puppy. Saving a puppy. Like you got all the elements that you need uh, for a good story there. So uh, pretty cool to see that. We will be at NAPE this week. Come hang out with us. Um, we'll be also at all be the all parties the, too. We'll be see at lots you at the of parties. Opportune yeah. party, et cetera. Yeah. Shout out to Opportune. We'll be there. We'll be at the Landman Life Happy Hour. Be at NAPE after dark. So we'll be all over Houston. And I'm sure we will be back next week with some stories. I hope to see some Landman fist fighting over uh, overriding royalty interests. Those are always my favorites. So catch you guys next week.